0: You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast, knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Today, I'm pleased to share with you part two of my conversation with Leslie Kaminoff. The episode focuses on Leslie's early history as a yoga teacher and the rise of fitness yoga in America. Part one, which I released in March, was about Yoga Alliance and their recent work on overhauling standards. At the time, Leslie was on their standards update committee and was sharing as much as he could while also complying with the NDA that all the committee members sign. At the time, we scheduled a part two of the interview at a time that we hoped he would be released from the NDA and able to reveal and comment on the updated standards. However, the actual process took way longer, of course, and we still had a great conversation, but it seemed premature to release them because there was a lot of overlap with the prior episode and not a lot of new information. When the Yoga Alliance finally did release their new standards in July, I was able to interview CEO Shannon Roche right away, and Leslie released a public statement on his position about the new standards, both of which I will link to in the show notes. With most of our previous conversation either dated or repetitive, I decided to edit the episode to focus on some of the background to the bigger conversation and Leslie's personal story, which is super interesting. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with a straight-talking teacher who's been around long enough to see tremendous change in how yoga is practiced and perceived in America. I believe that understanding where we came from, our roots as Western yoga teachers, can help us to navigate the current changes in the yoga world with more compassion and more integrity. I hope that this conversation can be a piece of that for you, as it certainly was for me. Imagine your child came to you and said, Dad, I want to be a yoga teacher, but I want to strike out on my own. I don't want to only learn from you. What should I do? Uh,
1: first of all, don't give up your day job. I tell that to anyone, especially my children. But, you know, um, <laughs> so there's there's that. So where would I direct them, you yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like... Uh, well, I would say the same thing to, to them as I would say to, to anyone. You know, there, there's so many factors. That, and I, People have come to me with these questions over the years. You know, who would you recommend?
0: Right.
1: And the first thing I ask is, well, where do you live? What's close to you, you know? Because that will determine a, a lot of the, you know, the choices that are open to you. Are you willing to uproot yourself from your life and go somewhere else for a higher quality or more intensive or a more kind of residential kind of a thing? Or are you going to not give up your day job and find a program that's designed for people that have jobs where you can do, you know, weekends or evenings or whatever fits into your schedule and what is, like, geographically accessible to you?
0: Right. Do you you have any thoughts about the difference between those two formats?
1: Well, just that they, they are different and they appeal to people who are at different stages of their life, you know? or in between stages of their life. When I did my teacher's training in 1979, I was 21 years old. You know, I was able to walk away from, you know, my, my life and, and, and the, the jobs I was doing to pay my rent for a month, and it turned out to be longer than that, that summer. Um, plus, my, my dad was helping me to pay for the training. So, you know, that's, that was a very particular phase of my life. You know, and, and then when I got involved with uh, studying with Jessica Char uh, about 10 years later, I was in a very, I was, I had a family and, you know, I had a, a studio in New York and I, I can't just uproot myself and move to India. You know, I could just follow him around wherever he was as best I could and, you know, uh, arrange my, my other work commitments accordingly. I, I think it, it has to do with so many factors and it's so individual, you know. Um, cause these things aren't free, you know, a, a big question, like, how are you paying for it? These, these things are like 10 times, at least what they cost when I was doing trainings way back, you know, 40 years ago, of course, inflation adjusted, it's not 10 times. It's just, there's just another zero at the end of it, but it's probably less than that. But, you know, um, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's worth the conversation is what I'm saying. I don't think there's a pat answer, mm-hmm. you know? To, to any of it. Just as there's no sort of one way to to teach a person yoga, you have to know who the person is.
0: What did you do before you taught yoga? Did you have another day job at some point?
1: I had part-time things with flexible hours, the kinds of jobs uh, here in New York City that that uh, that actors and performing artists in general tend to have. You know, so if they get an audition or job or something, they they can you know still uh, not lose the job and things like that. You know, so I was. But, but, you know, my rent was $160 a month, you know? I was living in a tiny little one-bedroom in the East Village, and I had a pretty low overhead. Um, so, you know, but it wasn't, none of none of the things I was doing were anything like a career,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know? Um, at, at one point, I was working in sort of the, the theatrical world, doing, um, you know, production work, stage managing, lighting, sound, stuff like that. Um, and I, I did have some, some, some jobs um, in in that area. Um, but uh, at the time I did my teacher training in, in 79, I was actually just, I was basically, uh, you know, um, just doing part-time work with flexible hours.
0: So it was basically stuff to support your yoga.
1: I made, I made the jump pretty quickly from my first class ever at the Shivananda Center here in New York, and that would have been 1978, to uh, a beginner's course, I think it was a five- or six-week beginner's course at the New York Center, to the very next summer saying, hey, I think I'd like to do this for a month and sleep in a tent and you know, do it twice a day and study the philosophy and eat the diet and do the meditation and the chanting and all that. And I just I did not have it as a plan to spend the rest of my life doing this thing. It, it, it wasn't well thought out at all. It just so happened that they had a festival going on that summer, right after my teacher's training was over, uh, for which I had a skill set. You know, they needed a stage manager. They didn't know they needed. I needed to tell them that they needed a stage manager, and they needed a stage, and we had to build the stage first. And so there was like this was in my wheelhouse, right? So I very quickly became like a useful person around the ashram, and so my skill set and my interests and um, my my practice and all of that just came together and I just naturally sort of gravitated to doing more and more work for the Shivananda organization.
0: When did it become full-time for you?
1: Uh, For me, officially it became full-time when in the winter, well, around new years of 1980 into 1981, um, I went to India to help them teach a teacher training course at the ashram in Kerala. That's, I had been sort of part-time staff back and forth from, my New York life to like stints at the uh, retreat on Paradise Island and spending time at the headquarters in Canada. Um, and it was when I was at the headquarters in Canada over, uh, I was there over the winter of 79 into 80, and then again of 80 into 81 that they announced they needed someone to go on this trip to India to do some tech work, there was translation equipment, there was video, there was, you know, just like, again, stage managing and some teaching. And it was at that point that I convinced Swami Vishnu to uh, initiate me into uh, sannyas. And I was 22, about to turn 23. And so I went to India being part-time, and I came back being a full-time committed renunciate Swami, which was actually uh, just the, 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 the worst way to break up with my girlfriend in New York at the time, to come back with well orange. It's just like the worst breakup ever. It's just like... Worse than doing it through text. It was just, I was such an asshole. I was just, it was terrible.
0: Well, how long were you a renunciate for? Because I, I heard about the family later, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> how long did I officially keep my vows? Or how long did I keep wearing orange? Because those are two different dates.
0: Of both. It wouldn't be as interesting if you only told us one.
1: My vows lasted nine months. Pretty good. Well, But that's not how long my celibacy lasted. See, that's the point I was making. Um, So, yeah, but they shipped me off to West Hollywood, you know, in 1981. And um, it was a very interesting environment uh, to be a young, new Swami uh, center director and West Coast resident, as opposed to what at that point had been lifelong New Yorker. So a lot of things kind of come crashing in. And, you know, they come crashing in no matter where you are, what you're doing when you take those vows. You know, they don't, they don't tell you. There's no Swami manual that says, you know, these things you're renouncing are going to come back and hit you in the face a hundred times harder than you ever thought they would. And, and in my case, it really was true because, you know, the basic vows you take are um, uh, poverty, obedience, and celibacy, right? You you don't have any of your own wealth, any of your own money. You're not you know earning for yourself. You're working for the organization, and the organization takes care of you, but you don't have your own private financial existence. That's the vow of poverty. Um, But when you're a Swami, you get appointed in a position of leadership, and I was sent to be a center director. I'm handling more money I ever handled in my life. It's not my money, but you know, I'm making the deposits and I'm doing the purchasing and collecting the rent and you know, paying all the vendors, and you know, it's like Okay, I need to learn how to deal with money. I just renounced it, but here it is hitting me in the face. And then the obedience thing was, you know, you obey the guru. What he says, you do. That's just, you don't question that. Only my guru, Swami Vishnu Devananda, is out flying around the world and, you know, dropping leaflets over over Northern Ireland and throwing flowers at jet fighters over the Suez Canal. He was known as the Flying Swami. He was off doing his peace mission stuff and... He was leaving the direction of the centers, pretty much the center directors, with very loose, central guidance. I was in charge. People had to listen to me. I was in charge of this whole community of people living at the yoga center. So, so much for the vow of obedience. People had to be obedient to me. And as far as the third vow, the, the vow of celibacy is concerned, um, <laughs> what they don't tell you is, is that when you put on those robes and you start wearing orange, um, you're announcing to the world you have basically taken this vow of celibacy and you're not having sex. and it, Apparently, and they don't tell you this, there is nothing more attractive to a member of the opposite sex than someone who's taken a vow of celibacy. And so that comes back and hits you in the face, you know, or other- family, but,
0: <laughs> <Where> Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> so, you know, that I, that I lasted nine months was kind of a miracle. It was the celibacy that got me out of the robes, but it was the obedience thing that eventually got me out of the organization, but that was later. I stayed on as director, of that center once I renounced my renunciation.
0: I see. Well, that was nice of them to let you, right?
1: Well, I was doing a good job. I was bringing in money. I was uh, actually, it turned out I was pretty good at that job.
0: So your vows lasted nine months, and how long did you stay with the Shivananda organization?
1: Uh, I started there uh, in, uh, I can tell you the exact date, March 19th, 1981 is when I first set foot in that place, and then it was the fall of the following year of 1982 that I left organization but I stayed in LA and that's when I started doing the sports medicine work and a lot of the other stuff where I started really learning more about the anatomy and rehab. uh, What
0: was was the first thing you said that you started doing at that point? Sports medicine. Sports medicine. Yes I worked
1: at a place called the International Sports Medicine Institute.
0: And how did you get that job?
1: My girlfriend. I was living with a, a wonderful lady who I'm still friends with named Linda Huey. Uh, she was considerably older than me, um, uh, 11 years older than me. Um, but uh, she was a professional um, coach and an athlete, a uh, world-class uh, athlete. She had already written a book about her life. At age 26, she wrote an autobiography, um, which was about what it was like to be a pre-Title IX female athlete. And a lot of the experiences she had um, both athletically and politically in the late 60s, which was a very, very politically explosive time, you could say. And in any case, uh, she was friends with the doctor who started the International Sports Medicine Institute, who's a chiropractic orthopedist named Leroy Perry. And um, at the time, I was getting involved with um, some biomedical technology, which was just emerging. Which was using microscopic amounts of current to produce effects similar to acupuncture. Uh, it was used particularly for healing soft tissue injuries. And so, through a friend of Linda's, I became conversant with this equipment and was trained in how to use it. And was getting really nice results. And that's what got me in the door of the Sports Medicine Institute because they wanted that equipment there, and I was the guy that was specializing it in it. Um, and from there, it was a, a small leap to uh, starting some. Uh, Yoga flexibility training for some of the athletes that were passing through the place. This was leading up to the '84 Olympics, which were in Los Angeles at the time, so there was a lot of activity there. Uh, this was also when fitness was becoming an industry, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 so we were like at ground zero of that because the location of the institute was really literally just down the block from Jane Fonda's first big studio, and she was just exploding at the time, um, as were like aerobics injuries and so we got to see the first wave of aerobics injuries and uh you know uh, nautilus equipment was just getting developed which meant you could do safer weight training um for for people uh, rather than them using free weights so you know you had the olympics happening you had the running boom which had already been going on um you had group fitness uh just going into just absolute hyperdrive because of jane fonda you had the whole sort of club culture that was developing there. You know, if you remember the movie Perfect with Jamie Lee Curtis and John Travolta, you're probably a little young for that. Rent it. It's awesome. Because it tells about, it, basically it's based on a, a club there called the um, Sports Connection, which was in Santa Monica. Um, we called it the Sports Erection, but that's a whole other thing. But if you see the movie, you'll see why we called it that. Um, so all of this came together and, and the, f- the fitness industry literally was forged in those, in those years. And then 10 years later is when that sort of newly minted industry turned its sights to yoga and wanted yoga to come in. We talked about that last time, about how, you know, there was this incredible demand for teachers and not much supply. And that's when you start seeing these weekend trainings.
0: Yeah, this is the prequel.
1: This is all the prequel. If fitness hadn't become an industry, uh, it wouldn't have been able to absorb yoga and yoga would not have exploded the way it did. Because of all the athletic forms of yoga that were being taught at that point, you know the Ashtanga Vinyasa practice was was just hitting the the fitness market at the right time in the right place, and it really was the two coasts that were driving the conversation. I was in L.A. in the early mid '80s when the fitness thing was happening. I was back here in New York ten years later uh, when um, the whole Ashtanga thing was happening. The main scene here at the time was Jiva Mukti, uh, and then uh, yoga. Yoga works, of course, on the West Coast. Um, and, you know, it just, it kept exploding. Celebrities got involved, and it was the Holy Trinity of celebrity yoga at the time. And, you know, it was uh, uh, Sting and Gwyneth and Madonna. You know, th- th- then they were driving it culturally. And then you saw Christy Turlington on the cover of Time Magazine doing yoga. It was, th- th- those were heady times.
0: What was it like being kind of in that world so deeply at that time
1: it was a it was I was thinking well okay this is because you see so many fads come and go you know and within the fitness industry anyone that works in the fitness industry particularly in group fitness or even personal training will tell you that you know things come and go and you know like one one year it's the step aerobics another year it's kettlebells and another one it's resistance bands and you know it's you know, there's these waves and fads and all that, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, this 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 yoga fad will sort of fade, and um, you know, I, 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 it's not that I was against it. It was great because I was getting, uh, and you know, Jay Brown talks about this a lot on this podcast because he was coming up as a teacher right around then too. You know, he was he was at Mukti and some other places like where I was teaching, and so, you know, he talks about this that era a lot where you, you're getting all these private clients and you can make a pretty good living. Because there was such a demand for people who could teach yoga, um, I was running my own studio at that time and was sort of making ends meet because we were all, I was always a niche even within that because I wasn't doing the athletic stuff, I was doing more of the therapeutics. but I kept thinking, okay it'll pass, and you know the public will move on to something else but um, it, it really what happened is it just took roots in the sort of fitness conversation and became part of that and so now you have uh yoga as fitness or physical training going through its waves of innovation and you know change and um uh, some people would say exploitation uh or monetization and it just uh, the fad hasn't passed yet it seems you know and here we are 20 years later in the alliance conversation saying okay you know we rode that wave it took us this far now there's enough voices in the community there's enough scholarship going on there's and by the way let's not forget social media which didn't exist I, I said you know internet you know like online training didn't exist back then you know, social media didn't exist either so you have all of these voices now that that can be very very vocal and influential, in many cases is beyond their numbers you know it's it's the loudest ones who are a minority who get a lot of attention um, but the thing that I look at now that's that's sort of the ground level of all of that which exists out there and is solid and isn't going away it's not the it's not the goat yoga or the beer yoga or the rage yoga or the you know weed yoga or whatever it is that comes and goes and that's ways of people getting people in the door and, and that's fine and it's, it's, it's not like every teacher or teaching situation is being abusive or triggering or, or whatever you know there are things that happen they are serious they need to be dealt with but the vast vast majority of what's happening out there in yoga teaching is at a community level these are people that don't get a lot of publicity they don't have a bazillion you know followers on Instagram they don't get invited to teach at conferences you know they show up to learn at conferences and these are the people who are in my workshops or whatever and i talk to them interact with them and hear their stories and i show up wherever i teach around the world there is a world of yoga that is working just working for people and it's transforming their lives and it is solid and it is fueled by guest teacher training programs Um, It's fueled by um, the the recognition that it helps your health, it helps your mind, um, it helps with certain chronic issues that people have. It It just helps. And it's being taught by people that it has helped, whose lives yoga has transformed, who are motivated to pursue it more deeply whether as a practice or uh, teaching, you know. It's it's 99% of the time it's working. 1% of the time it gets fucked up really badly and it gets a lot of headlines and a lot of attention. And I'm not saying that it's not serious and it doesn't need to be addressed, but it's very easy to get a very skewed view of what's actually happening by listening to these loud voices with agendas.
0: I get to interface with a lot of different yoga teachers through the podcast, and that is why that fitness, that trend of yoga never faded, is because people started it, and they had an experience of feeling less pain, more wholeness. They found tools that helped them to suffer less, and ultimately, you know, in this world and this body that we live in that's that's what most of us are looking for and there are so many people out there who are experiencing benefit through the tools of yoga in lots of different ways and formats
1: right and whatever way you find your, yourself entering that class or however you get in the door it's great and i have i have no objection to that i've had people in my workshops who who were in who felt like they had to hide the fact that their entree into this world as a practitioner or a teacher was through fitness, you know? And, and I, I have to be very sure, certain, to include all of that possibility in the conversation because you never know where someone's going to start or what's going to get them in the door. And, and to take this sort of high and mighty, I'm the defender of the good name of the yoga tradition or whatever, you know, um, does a tremendous disservice to people who uh, who come in through these you know, non-traditional channels and find a genuine, deep connection to themselves and eventually to aspects of the tradition, you know? Um, and I, I think it's extremely narrow-minded and exclusionary uh, of people who take that stand that, oh, you're not doing real yoga, you know? How dare you combine this word or this thing with yoga? That's not real yoga, you know, according to the way I define it. Because I have met some amazing, wonderful, sensitive, skilled, highly effective teachers who came in because they just wanted to stretch, you know? They wanted to cross-train with their other athletic stuff, which was their main focus, and they found something, as you said, about themselves, some connection that was that was deeper. And it's not like the information about the vast ancient tradition of yoga is hiding anywhere. All you have to do is enter yoga into a Wikipedia search. Mm-hmm. And you don't get beer yoga at the top of that Wikipedia search. You get the tradition. Mm-hmm. So... In this age where that level of information is instantly available to anybody who chooses to look just a little bit below the surface, how can we take a stand that says, you shouldn't be able to call that yoga? There ought to be a law about what you're doing. You shouldn't be able to do that. You know that. I, look, I understand the emotional reaction out of which that point of view comes, but Isn't yoga about being able to create a little space between your emotional reactivity and how you behave in the world? So I think these people are not exhibiting great um, yoga when they claim to be the defenders of yoga against the barbarians trying to, uh, you know, climb the wall of their sacred temple. So there, uh, um, I'll get off my soapbox now.
0: I think you said this just in our last conversation about the Dalai Lama who's like, yeah, I'm just getting faster at returning to center. It's not that I'm not leaving.
1: Right. Yeah. You no, know, people ask me if he ever gets off balance, you know, because he appears not to be ever off balance. And it's like, wow. it's just very fast. You never see how quick I get back on balance.
0: Since your yoga is not the fitness oriented type of yoga, is there anything else that you do for fitness?
1: Yeah, I play basketball. Uh, I mean, I, I, there's a gym in our building, and I go downstairs and hit the gym every so often, uh, you know, to do some cardio, which is boring. So I watch, you know, ESPN while I'm doing it, catch up on what's going on with my New York sports teams that suck, you know. Well, I'm just, I'm thinking of the Knicks right now. But anyway, I'm an old Knicks fan, and they've been breaking their fans' hearts for many generations. So, yeah, you know, uh, I do some cardio. Um, I do some resistance work, uh, mainly uh, working my pulling muscles. Uh, I have to remind people, kinesiologically speaking, yoga is not a complete workout because it works your pushing muscles, not your pulling muscles. If 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 I if I were the the god of the yoga standards, and I am most assuredly not um, included as mandatory in the anatomy however many hours of anatomy, yoga works your pushing muscles. You, you can only push your body weight away against the resistance of gravity from the floor. You're not pulling against resistance, and unless you have a rope wall or something, some external thing to grab onto and pull against. And um, that alone disqualifies yoga or anything that's purely calisthenic without using external equipment or handles or, you know, bars or whatever, um, from being a complete workout, just from the standpoint of muscle groups and muscle pairings and pushing versus pulling and all of that. So it's an extremely ignorant, uh, anatomically ignorant uh, statement to make about an activity like yoga. And the other thing is because there are intense forms that do challenge your, your cardio respiratory system that doesn't mean that you can get your cardio from yoga either you will not get your heart rate up into that working zone uh safely with just a yoga routine no matter how hard or fast you do a vinyasa you you will injure your joints before you will get your heart rate up to where you want it to be for the um aerobic type of conditioning that you're looking for so that's another uh, myth that. But the cool thing
0: is that yoga is amazing enough already. It doesn't have to also be a complete exercise right. and give you your cardio.
1: And the, thing, the amazing things that it does allows you to be more effective in all the other things that you're going to want to do to round out your, your health, your fitness, and just your life in general.
0: Say more about that
1: well just the the ability to 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 concentrate and to pay attention to what's going on in your system mm. the, the ability to, to work hard but not injure yourself all of the proprioception that uh, you're being encouraged to, to have and the interoception um, that's encouraged through a yoga practice the steadiness of the mind the discrimination all of that comes to bear you know i mean i i frequently i am putting into practice on the basketball court things that I learned in my yoga practice. So it, it is, you know, conveying some foundational skills that apply way beyond what happens on the mat, obviously.
0: To wrap back around and just check in with where we are now with the Yoga Alliance standards review and what's happening in the yoga world at this time
1: so many moving parts of this conversation it, it, it's really it's a daunting daunting task i do not envy the people at the alliance who are wrestling with these tricky issues which is all the more reason to have principles <laughs> that guide you and not just public opinion polls you know or consensus as a way of governing you you know it's it's Consensus is, is a method of governance, but it doesn't tell you what the principle should be. You know, you know, it's like democracy. People use the word democracy so improperly, you know, in the general conversation about desirable political systems. Democracy is not a political system. It's a method for selecting leadership. A political system is determined by whatever constitutional rights are being, you know, guaranteed and protected by a republic you know, and then you use democracy to select leaders, but you can't vote in leaders who then have the power to vote away your fundamental rights. You know, there's democracies in the world that have managed to vote themselves into dictatorships. You know, that's a democracy, but it's not what people I think mean when they use the word as something that's a desirable political system. And by the same token, you can't just base these policy decisions on consensus. It, you need principles, just like you need a constitution that's based on principles of individual rights and liberty. And, you know, um, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness.
0: About 10, 15 years ago, at least where I am, there was a really strong movement towards consensus as a decision-making process.
1: How much of a clusterfuck did that end up as?
0: Well, it's not around much anymore.
1: No shit. You ever try to operate in an environment that get anything done in an environment like that? You
0: can't because what happens is that this is <laughs> this is a reflective of what you were talking about with the loudest voices, you will always have a few personalities yeah who get something out of disrupting the process. Yeah. And being be, blocking consensus.
1: Well, there was was a loud voice like that in the ad hoc committee, and she became the first president of the alliance. And things started going off the rails pretty damn quick. And I wish I had, you know, stepped up and, and, you know, uh, made more of a stink about the way I saw things going, but the best thing I could do at that point was to step back and just start an email list called Isutra, where I could put out to as wide an audience as possible um, the other side of the conversation. Mm,
0: so that yeah. was the beginning of the eSutra email list.
1: Absolutely. It was because I was answering a lot of email questions from people asking me why I resigned. And I kept cutting and pasting the same explanation into different emails. And and Rich McCord is one of the original people who I ended up having this correspondence with. And, you know, it was like, you know, I, I, these, you know I, I'm doing some good writing here. I'm having to do some really good thinking about the principles that I think are important in this conversation, and I was like, "This is an important conversation going on, and it, it, you know, I would like it to kind of get out there, and 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 also have other people weigh in." And this was an early, early uh, sort of email list. I was running it out of AOL, which was not designed for that, and I was just scraping people's emails out of a search for people who listed yoga as a, as a, as an interest of theirs. That's how you did it. You know and it was the Wild West like people would send me emails where they had, you know inadvertently exposed everyone that they sent the email to and I'm like that's a bunch of emails let me scrape those they're interested in yoga and it was like there were no best practices then it wasn't like you know this is uh, unconscionable behavior I learned later that actually no you don't do that but you know this is me fessing up that's how I built the uh, Centralist, right? How
0: big is it now?
1: Oh, it's not so much a list anymore. It kind of got imported into uh, Blogger and then into WordPress. And now I don't really blog so much. And everything's on Facebook now and Instagram. So,
0: But I still you... get emails from you. How often? Not very, but you must have yeah. an email list.
1: It, it, well, there's a list that those original emails eventually ended up as the distribution list from WordPress when I... Present a new uh, blog post; it gets pushed out to them, but it also gets pushed out to social media as well. Because the thing is, people don't comment on blogs anymore; they want to comment in social media. So, any meaningful exchange that happens around these ideas or articles I write generally are not happening at all on my blog anymore. And we saw that shift several years ago, where people just you know, people are right there; their social media is right in front of them, and that's where they're going to react and type and and have the conversation. So it's evolved. It's evolved. But, but eSutra, those threads are preserved on my blog at yoganatomy.org. You can go in and see the original conversation about standards that was happening with the people that were on the committee, with the woman that became the first president of the Alliance and, and with some of the subsequent developments over the years.
0: Well, that sounds really interesting. I wonder if you'll see a little bump on uh, your analytics after this episode is released.
1: I don't know, we'll look at it.
0: Anybody well, you can post
1: the link to the, to the e-Sutra and I will. In fact, um, I'll send you the link to that particular dialogue about certification standards. And it goes way back into the 90s uh, when we started having these conversations. So, yeah.
0: I think on that note, we'll wrap up. Thank you for sharing so generously with, of your time and your thoughts. I really, really love hearing people's stories, especially people who've been around longer than I have. So I hope you enjoyed hearing more of Leslie's story today. If you have requests or suggestions for other people that you'd like me to have as a guest on the podcast, please reach out to me. Let me know. You can email me at helloyogateacher at gmail.com. And speaking of emails, I've been getting so many really sweet emails from listeners recently. Thank you so much to everybody who's reached out. It means so much to hear back from all of you who are listening because I can see the numbers. I can see that there's a lot of people paying attention, but I don't always know what's landing specifically and what you're taking away and what you want to hear more about. I also want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who's left a review on Apple Podcasts recently. I want to highlight a review by Judy Zen, She says, great topics, very helpful. These podcasts are terrific. I cherry-picked the first few, which address some of my current issues, and they were so helpful and informative that I decided to go back to episode zero to listen to all of them. I've passed them on to my fellow yoga teachers in my community, and as a side note, they are my motivation that gets me out walking. I love listening to podcasts while I exercise. Thanks, Madot. And thank you right back at you, Judy, for that really warm and enthusiastic endorsement. Y'all, the reviews really make my day. So if the podcast has been helpful to you, if you would take five minutes, go on Apple Podcasts. Almost everybody has an iTunes account. So if you have an iTunes account, you can easily leave a review and that would really make my day. Whether you've left a review or not, I'm really grateful that you're even listening, that you care so much about teaching yoga, that you spend your time thinking about and listening to podcasts about teaching yoga. To all of you who are still listening, thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for caring so much, and thank you for showing up week in and week out to hold space for your students. Come back next week for another episode, and until then, please remember to make time for your personal practice.